Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. God, we do thank you very much for the opportunity that we have to be recipients of your truth to have your word, the sure foundation on which we stand. We thank you, God, for what's gone on here the last decade on Thursday nights, studying carefully your word and your truth and systematizing its teaching on all these important topics that we've covered in the last nine or ten years. And we pray now, God, as we look at these individual groups that we would give a fair and honest appraisal representing uh, clearly and uh, plainly what these uh, groups are teaching God, even with tonight's topic, we know that there's a lot of internal inconsistencies that are hard to uh, reconcile, depending on when you quote leaders. And so we pray that there might be a a clarity of thought and and even a a sense of of just understanding what is going on in the minds of the Mormons in our world today, especially right here in our county. And we pray that we would just leave this time better equipped to deal with this issue. I think about the Apostle Paul talking about the weapons of our warfare They're not like the weapons of this world, but they are divinely powerful for the destruction of strongholds and these thoughts and intentions that raise themselves up against the knowledge of God. And we pray that we would be people that can give an answer for the hope that's in us with gentleness and respect and yet with a clarity about what is true and what is not. So help us through this tonight, I pray, and and give us a good time of communication and reception of all that's taught in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. As we always do, we try to get a little perspective here on what each of these groups is doing in terms of the population. So we'll continue that, even though this seems minuscule, when you have a world of 7.4 billion people. Those that claim Mormonism uh, are roughly around 15 million today, which is about 0.2%. So that's a small group. And just to compare that to where we were thinking last week about those that do not call themselves Catholics or Eastern Orthodox, those that we might call Protestants, of which we're a part, And you can compare that 12% to 0.2%. It is a small fraction, and yet it's a growing fraction of of what's going on in a a growing group. So we need to give it attention, particularly as we think about the United States of America, which has just a little less than half of the worldwide Mormons right here in the States. Of course, it's an American birth religion, and most of its adherents are right here, about 6.5 million. That's about 2% of the population in the U.S., which is a much bigger percentage. Those that claim Protestantism, just to compare from last week, 148 million, 47%. And I would think it's very important for us living here in the Southwest that we recognize that it is something that we are probably going to encounter more than a lot of people living in different places in our world. I hope that text is big enough for you to read. Uh, This is just sorted by just sheer numbers, uh, head count. We got about 2 million Mormons in Utah, as everyone knows. Maybe not the number, but you know there's a lot of Mormons in Utah. California is number two, so we're living in the most, second most populous state for Mormons. Idaho, Arizona, Texas, Washington, Nevada, Oregon. So over here where we're at, with the exception of Texas, we've got a lot of Mormons. You see the column there of percentages. As a matter of fact, let's just sort it by that column. If you're in Utah, you're going to run into some Mormons. That's about 68% 
of the total population. In Idaho, you might be surprised to know, Idaho 26%, unless you spend some time there, you will know it. Wyoming 11%, Nevada 6.3%, Arizona 6.4%, Hawaii, Montana, Alaska, in that order. I have the temples there in the left-hand column, and you'll see in California we have seven. Uh, Utah's got the most, of course, at 16. The ones you're familiar with, if you drive the toll road, of course, is the Newport Beach Temple, which you see off the toll road there to the south of the uh, southwest, I guess, depending on which way you're going. And, of course, you know this behemoth off the uh, I-5 in La Jolla. It's called the San Diego Temple, but we know it there when you're in La Jolla because we know the area. I remember when they built that, actually toured that when they let the the pagans go through it before they sanctified it and uh, was able to share the gospel with several Mormons while I was there, which I don't think that's why they invited me, but got a chance to go through the temple, which looks a bit like a couple of spaceships parking. I don't know how they got a permit for that, but uh, another one I'm sure you've seen if you've been up and around the LA area, here the Los Angeles temple, passed by that many times, or if you're out in the inland area, the Redlands temple uh, is another. I just gave you some that you're used to seeing with the angel Moroni there at the top in gilded gold. I want to talk about the foundational claim of Mormonism. If we don't start here, then we'll miss the urgency of us dealing with this. The reason it's so high in our list of covering this particular group is because of the foundational claim of Mormonism. It may only be 0.2% of the world's population and only 2% of America, but we've got to recognize what huge claims are being made by Joseph Smith. This is in his teenage, his apparent and claimed teenage revelation when God shows up in human form, God the Father and God the Son, to respond to his inquiry uh, about where he should go to church. My object in going to inquire of the Lord, which of all the sects was right? That's what you want to know, which group? Should I be a Presbyterian, Methodist? Should Should I be a Lutheran or a Baptist? He's saying, well, I want to know which one to join. No sooner, therefore, did I get possession of myself so as to be able to speak when I asked the personages, there were two of them there, he claims, the Father and the Son, who stood above me in the light, of which all of the sects was right and which should I join. I want to know which church to join, which group, which denomination. I was answered that I must join none of them, for they were all wrong. And the personage who addressed me said that all their creeds were an abomination in his sight. Okay, now this is in 1820. So you've got to think about what's going on uh, in terms of just modern church history. I can say there were some groups, certainly, that their creeds were an abomination to God, but uh, that's quite a statement to make about all the churches in New York or New England or in America. And this is a sweeping statement, of course, as a universal statement. All their creeds were an abomination in his sight, that those professors, all that, that claimed some kind of relationship with God, were all corrupt. Everyone is corrupt. That they drew near to me with their lips. Now he's quoting the words of Isaiah, which Jesus quoted in Matthew. But their hearts are far from me. They teach for doctrines the commandments of men, having a form of godliness. They deny the power thereof. Now he's quoting Paul's epistle to Timothy. He again forbade me to join any of them. And many other things uh, did he say unto me, which I cannot write at this time. Which, by the way, in all of his revelations, he loves to end that way so he can build on, add to, or amend the things that he claims to have seen. So everything, religiously speaking, those that claim to know God, those that claim to relate to Christ, were said in his teenage years to be revealed to him by God himself that every other religious group, every denomination was corrupt. There were none that had the truth. So you shouldn't join any of them. This has come down through the ages, you know, through the generations of leaders in the Mormon church. This is the 12th Mormon president, 1973 to 1985, Spencer Kimball, 
He said, this is, speaking of Mormonism, the only true church. This is not a church. This is the church of Jesus Christ. There are churches of men uh, all over the land. They have great cathedrals and synagogues and houses of worship. But this is the church. So Mormonism is not coming on the scene suggesting, as even some of the world religions that we'll look at, as just another flavor or expression of what God is doing in the world. This claims to be the only one. Uh, Spencer Kimball says elsewhere, Latter-day Saints are true Christians. We cannot understand how anyone could question our being Christians. We are the true followers, not just a set, but the true followers of, of Jesus Christ. And we hope the world will finally come to the conclusion that we are Christians if there are any in the world, okay? If there are any Christians, we're it. This is their thinking. And certainly even in that defensive statement, they do not like being called uh, non-Christians. They don't like to be called a cult, of course, as you can understand, but they are fighting hard that PR campaign to be not only part of Christianity, but they are the true expression uh, of, of Christianity. They are the true Christians. This is not just another church, he says. This is not just one of, of a family of Christian churches. This is the church and kingdom of God, the only true church upon the face of the earth, according to the Lord's own words. Now, again, we could have perhaps some of your Mormon friends that are not good Mormons. They're bad Mormons because they don't adhere to the prophetic voice of their presidents through the generations and the founding prophet. But you've got to know when you're talking to a Mormon, they think that you are part of a corrupt organization. You are not a part of the church. It's not like you're a Baptist and they're a Presbyterian. They recognize and they've been saying through the decades, they are the only true church upon the face of the earth. His church, it bears his name. It is directed under the authority of his priesthood. It's a message that will save and exalt the souls of the children of men. There is no other way because this is the only true message and the only true church upon the face of the whole earth. Uh, as emphatic as you can get. Those are not my words. They're the words of Jesus Christ as found upon the revelations, the gospel in its purity now restored to the earth. So we had corruption. We had no true churches. We had no true Christians. We had no creeds that were acceptable to God. Joseph Smith came through the revelations he received and claims to have brought the restored gospel to the earth. And now, even today, it is the only true church with the only recognized in heaven authority on earth that it represents God because they have uh, the priesthoods restored. We'll look at that. Got to start there, right? Now think that through. We, we, you, you, I don't think we can discuss Mormonism without starting with that uh, huge and, and very definitive claim. Uh, it's not, you can't take some of it. You, you take all of it and everything else is uh, rejected. Let's think through some high points in Mormon history that I think we should understand. First, as you can see by the time frame here, this is a recent religious movement. It, of course, claims his history back, much like Islam, uh, as far back as you can go. But uh, it actually started with the birth of Joseph Smith Jr. in, in Vermont. American-born family moves when he's young to Palmyra, New York, uh, in upstate New York. Uh, he believes, as we said in his statement about all other religions being false, that the Father and Christ the Son appeared to him to say that all religions are corrupt. The angel Moroni then appears to him in 1823, uh, who becomes the key messenger of these revelations and appears repeatedly to teach him several times, he claims, at least three primary times in 19, 1823, rather, to start to mentor him and prepare him 
for the big revelation that's coming. Uh, there's a lot going on in his life, and we could talk about some of the things that he was known for. He was a treasure hunter. He had been sued for using a seer stone or a peep stone to find buried treasures. He would be a guide for people. Uh, there's a lot you could learn about it. I can refer you to some books to study his life, but I just thought I would at least throw in one of the lawsuits here and some of the trouble he was in uh, and what he was known for uh, back in 19, or 1826. And the next year, he is receiving, he claims, from the angel Moroni, the golden plates uh, that are buried in New York. John the Baptist, he says, comes to him in a very important vision, arrives, John the Baptist, personally to grant him the Aaronic priesthood. The Aaronic priesthood had been dormant. He is reviving it, and he is receiving the ability and the authority to have the Aaronic priesthood rekindled in, in the modern era. Uh, he claims then, Peter, James, and John, if you can read my abbreviations there, uh, they show up later in that year to grant him the Melchizedekian priesthood. So in his thinking, he's got the Aaronic priesthood, which he thought was a good start, but now we need to have uh, something different. We'll explain these later that will describe kind of mediation of a theocracy on earth, but it comes through the granting of the Melchizedekian priesthood. More on that later. In 1830, the Book of Mormon is printed, and the church begins to take shape and is organized uh, under his, his leadership. Mormons start to settle in Missouri. That's uh, one of the first places they, they take up residence. And you've got to remember that the concept of a theocracy is important, so it's important to have a group that functions in a place geographically under the leadership of these church leaders. So that's why their settlements were always so important. 65 revelations were printed in what was then called book, the Book of Commandments. More on why that's an important highlight. Uh, in 1835, we've got the practice of polygamy that is privately practiced. It's not publicly discussed, uh, but there's plenty of evidence to the practice of polygamy going on all the way back to 1835. The Book of Commandments is revised. Doctrines of, and it's called the Doctrine, uh, Doctrine and Covenants. More on that later, but that certainly describes and discusses polygamy. We'll look at some of that. 19 Mormons are killed in Missouri, and the group moves to Illinois. There's uh, a lot going on and a lot of negative response, as you can imagine, to the kinds of claims that are being made under the banner of Christ. And you've got a lot happening here as a very separatist kind of community is established through this religious leadership. New Revelation uh, now is starting to come out. And it's slowly becoming public to allow polygamy in their group. Again, this is just so much a part of their history that, you know, it's not that we're, we're hammering on the polygamy part. But that was certainly one of the, the hallmarks of what was going on in the community. Joseph Smith was then jailed and his, his life ended in 1844. You can read about uh, the history of that, a mob shootout and jail. He falls out of a second story window, gets shot and and he caused a lot of problems. It had a paper that was just being established to criticize him. He responded to that by burning the, the presses, and, and it just a mess we don't have time to get into, but he ends up dying in this skirmish in 1844. In 1846, Brigham Young then begins to lead the uh, Mormon church, moves them out to Salt Lake City, what would become Salt Lake City in, in 1846. The Pearl of Great Price, which is another authoritative work that we'll look at here in a minute, is published and added to the scripture, uh, as they call it. We call it scripture something else, but in 1880. Polygamy is publicly taught now and openly taught because it's uh, no longer something that, that's hidden. Ten years later, Congress is concerned about the whole thing and outlaws polygamy very definitively in their act that is passed in Congress. The, the fourth LDS or Mormon president, LDS Latter-day Saints, I think we're going to talk about that a little bit, but you know that's synonymous. Uh, that name came on later in their history, but 
was certainly here by 1890. The fourth president of the Latter-day Saints tells the people to stop practicing polygamy. It took some time, but then the official word came down that we shouldn't practice it anymore. It was never rescinded from the documentation of, of doctrines and covenants, doctrine and covenants, but certainly was not practiced. And I think you're going to see something very interesting with all the homosexual marriage that has now been established afresh, not afresh, but I guess you go back to Rome and it was established there in terms of illegality. But the uh, practice of homosexual marriage, and you know the show, I don't watch, but uh, with these polygamists that are in the separated LDS movement that are in court right now to try and argue the same way they argued for the normalization and the legality and the acceptance of homosexual marriage is now being argued the same exact arguments for plural marriage and will be it'll be interesting to see what happens when this becomes uh, legalized which i can only assume it has to uh, in time there's no logical reason it wouldn't be and uh, if that doctrine is not revised in, in growing sections of the church but that's all prognostication and i'm not a prophet um, make that clear Mormons are growing steadily. Now, I made a big jump here, but to 1950 is when they hit the one million member mark uh, in their church in 1950. 1967, they added another book to their canon of, of, of scripture, Book of Abraham, which is, uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that. Translated, I put that in quotes because it's not translated. <laughs> um, 1978, if you know anything about Mormonism, certainly embedded in their doctrine in the Book of Mormon was the Lamanites being cursed uh, and uh, not wanting to be attractive to God's people. They were given black skin, dark skin. They were never accepted into the priesthood, but that, that all changed in 1978 officially by the leadership of the church. That's a quick thumbnail of, of their history. Now let's talk in more detail about Mormon authority. Because it always comes back to who said, because you can say whatever you want to about God, but we've got to establish the credibility of any claims of authority. They will always start with, though they will not seem in terms of primacy in their practice, but they will always start with the fact that they believe that the Bible is God's word. But it's the revised King James Bible, and it is the revision done by Joseph Smith. Matter of fact, for short, you'll find it abbreviated as the JST, the Joseph Smith Translation. They have their own translation. And as Orson Pratt said, one of the early uh, Quorum of the Twelve, the apostles they have, which, of course, they've, they've rekindled and reestablished. Uh, and during his time, he said this about the Bible. And this is very important because modern Mormons still believe this, and we need to address this. Who, in his right mind, could for one moment suppose that the Bible, speaking of 66 books of the Bible that we carry around, pose the Bible in its present forms to be a perfect guide? Who knows that even one verse of the Bible has escaped pollution? Now, you'll always find in these groups that are going to establish a second authority, they will certainly detract from the authority of Scripture, and they'll do that, the Mormons in particular, by attacking its credibility. More on that in a minute. If you go to the LDS website, uh, you'll read this about the Bible in its doctrinal, official doctrinal statements. The prophet's main work, that is Joseph Smith, of revising, correcting, or translating the Bible was done in a three-year period from June 1830 to July 1833. During this time, no, no, notice this carefully, he and his scribes, Joseph Smith, went through the Old and New Testaments of the King James Version and produced nearly 500 pages of manuscript containing thousands of variant readings and new passages. I mean, I don't know. That should give anybody pause, I would think, uh, to say, you know, I've gone in, in the back room with my buddies and we've We've added 500 pages to the Bible. Um, 
Of course, they have to claim authority for who he is, and we'll get to that in a minute. But the Bible uh, that you carry around needs to be corrected. It needed to be clarified and enhanced, and that's what Joseph Smith personally did in that three-year period. The eighth article of faith, you can find this on their website, declares that we believe the Bible to be the Word of God. Now, here's the important phrase, as far as it is translated correctly. The translation of the Bible by Joseph Smith shows much of what is meant by this statement. So it's clear that they'll say, we believe the Bible. So you, they come to your door and you say, well, I believe in the Bible. Well, we believe the Bible too, but we believe in the Bible only as it's translated, insofar as it's translated correctly. Now we can look at the JST and say the Joseph Smith translation is what is correctly translated as Joseph Smith made his amendments and, and added uh, nearly 500 pages of information to it. Example, it's just one example. Genesis 50, verse 33, which if you know your Bible really well, you know there aren't 33 verses in, in Genesis 50, but he's going to add several verses, and this is one where he adds himself to, to Genesis 50. If you remember Genesis 50, you've got a lot going on about the, the blessing of Joseph's sons, and it's the end when he dies. And um, Anyway, several verses he adds, and this one in particular I think is worth noting and showing to you if you can read that. Uh, verse 33. Uh, and that seer I will bless. Speaking of the future, that things are going to come here uh, from the uh, lineage of, of Israel. They that seek to destroy him will be confounded. For this promise I give unto you, for I will remember you from generation to generation. And his name shall be called Joseph. Now, Joseph is dying. We're not talking about the Joseph of the Bible. And it shall be after uh, the name of, of his father. And remember, he's Joseph Smith Jr. And he shall be like unto you. For the thing which the Lord shall bring forth by his hand shall bring my people unto salvation. It's just an example of writing himself into the very text of Scripture. And as you read along through Genesis 50, um, if you're a Mormon, you want to read the Bible that's rightly translated. And Joseph Smith has done that for you by adding verses even about himself, which is important to note and scary. Now, this is what you're most familiar with, I assume, the Book of Mormon, boldly subtitled, Another Testament of Jesus Christ. Well, let's talk about that because, you know, the Bible is one that they'll go to great lengths to tell you is not reliable. Well, what about the Book of Mormon? Joseph Smith himself says about the book that he assembled. Now, he had to correct the Bible that you carry around, but the book that he assembled and claims to have translated from these plates is the most correct of any book on earth and the keystone of our religion. And a man would get nearer to God by abiding by its precepts than any other book. So, as I often say, when you want to add another source of authority to the Bible, uh, you're going to find conflict. And what you've got to ask yourself is who's going to win when these two authorities conflict? And you're always going to have, if the Bible's going to be included as a source of their authority, the, the new revelation, their revelation. Uh, and Joseph Smith was not even content with that, saying my book rules over that book, but he went back and made 500 pages of addition to the Bible. So he thinks it's the most correct and claims it's the most correct book on earth. Well, maybe, you know, that was just the wild-eyed founder. Well, let's go all the way to the 80s and 90s with the president, 14th, 13th president of the Mormons, Ezra Taft Benson, when he speaks of the Book of Mormon. He says, unlike the Bible, note this carefully now, which passed through generations of copyists, translators, and corrupt religionists who tampered with the text. The Book of Mormon came from writer to reader in just one inspired step of translation. And again, this is what you'll get when you have someone who is going to present you with Mormon doctrine, and you're going to open up your Bible, and you're going to say, well, listen, the Bible doesn't teach that. And they're going to say, well, you don't have the right translation of the Bible to start with. But even if you take their Bible, 
which you can. You can take the Joseph Smith translation, and obviously our doctrine's going to shine through because he didn't rewrite the entire thing, and you're going to be able to present things to them, and they're going to say, well, still, you've got a problem because the Bible is corrupted. Copyists, translators. This is what you get from non-Christians, atheists, when they tell you, I can't believe you're basing your beliefs on, on that book. This is I mean, when I share the gospel with Mormons, it's like I'm talking to, you know, just some rank-and-file Christian who wants to dismiss the Bible or some university professor who wants to throw the integrity of the Bible under the bus. And I should say this because last week I was just flying through doctrinal statements from the Catholic Church, and, and, you know, some of my critics last week were like, well, what's wrong with all that stuff you said? And I can't possibly go back and do what we did the last 10 years, and that is provide you with the biblical doctrine, or as I would say, the good theology to show you clearly the bad theology is bad. In other words, I can't take time right now to do what we did several years ago when we started with uh, bibliology, which is the study of the integrity of the English translation of the text that you have in your hand. We spent 13 or 14 weeks, an hour and a half at a time, walking through why we have an absolute confidence in the integrity of the Bible and that it is not corrupt by copyist translators and corrupt religionists that had tampered with the text. That's an unfounded statement. It's an ignorant statement. It cannot be substantiated by anyone who knows anything about the history of the Bible. It's absurd. And so I I can't All I can do is take you back to say, would you at least listen to the presentation that I've done or any, you know, sound biblical teacher has done about where our Bible came from. And all that's available on uh, focalpointministries.org, which, by the way, is a great ministry for you to support. It's not supported by our church. If you want that to continue, please give to that. I don't take a dime from that ministry, but that's an important thing that relies on donations to make that thing happen on the radio. We're on 800 stations. I'm getting in a roll right now about focal points. I want you to stop this, but it is a ministry a lot of people forget about. It's not on the dole in terms of any kind of budgetary item at our church. So if it doesn't have uh, responses from people like you for the wealth of information that it sends out, not just on the radio, but providing things like this, it's probably the number one downloaded, podcasted set of messages I've ever done is that whole series of Compass Nights, uh, starting with Bibliology all the way through Angelology. We did them in a number of different orders, but you know we didn't do them in a classic order, but we've got all the divisions of theology. So it's like last week, you know, I talk about Mary, I had Catholics say, oh, well, that all sounds good, all that stuff you said, as I quoted the CCC. Well, I didn't take time to talk about the issues of Christology, which make it very clear that if there's any mediatorial or co-redemptrix virtue of Mary, clearly I would think the epistles would bring her name up at least once, right? And, And we can't even deal with orthodoxy in these lectures. So all I can do is tell you, if you haven't spent some time studying the transmission of the text, the translation of the text, the preservation of the text, you've got to do that so that you can look at this guy. I don't care what title you have. It's the most ignorant and stupid statement, asinine. Can I use adjectives that get more uh, tense here? To say something like that. I mean, it's true. It's absurd. And you, the guys, you know, can knock on your door and say all day long, the Bible's not trusted. I guarantee you, let's sit down and talk about the history of the Bible. You know nothing about the transmission of the text if you're going to sit there with a straight face and try and tell me that what we have in our English text is not a reliable reflection of what was originally written. It's absurd. So go back and listen to those lectures if you haven't, or get a good book from our bookstore on the history of the Bible, and you'll recognize uh, this is absurd.
And then to claim that the Book of Mormon, of course, oh, so much better because no one's tampered with that text that came directly from God. I don't know. Yeah, it gets me angry because it's, it's ignorant, and ignorant people believe it. Book of Mormon. Next time they're at your door, ask for one. Say, I'd like one of those, and at least you'll get a free copy. Someone else won't get it. And you can, you can read through it, and you should read through it. And when I go to places in, in certain states that have them instead of the Bible, or sometimes they'll have the Gideon Bible and that, I'll, I'll always pull it out, mark it up. If I'm going to leave it, if not, take it, whatever. I'm sorry. It's been a really long day. Fifteen books. And, and if you thumb through it, uh, book, names, if you get familiar with Mormonism, Nephi, Jacob, Enos, Jerem, you know, Mormon, Alma, you can see these books, about 600 pages or so of books. And what is it? Well, if you haven't read it, it's a story of God's dealings, or so it claims, with America's inhabitants. Okay, when? From 2247 B.C. to about 421 A.D. That's a lot of history about the Americas. That should be really interesting. Now, again, all you have to do is read it. And if you read it, you'll recognize how absurd it is. And, and again, I'm not trying to belittle anybody. And if you're a Mormon here, I'm not trying to belittle. I'm just trying to say you've got to open your eyes up. I mean, the anachronisms in the text alone, and there's, there's so many of them. By anachronism, you know what I mean? Things that don't make sense in terms of time. You're claiming things that happened that, that couldn't possibly have happened. You're claiming steel at certain times, being things made out of steel, where steel was not yet, you know, on the scene, or compasses and ships, you know, centuries before we had compasses. And then you quote the King James Bible and say, well, it says in the Bible, fetch a compass. Well, that old King James phrase, look it up in Old English, means to circle around something. It has nothing to do with compasses. There's so many anachronisms in it, not to mention the racism in it. But anyway, if you get one, I don't mind you reading it, certainly if you're well-versed in the Bible, and you can, you can read the fanciful tale, which most people would say came from a guy named Spaulding, anyway, who wrote a fictional history that sounds exactly like this, and I know they have a lot of defensive statements to be made about why it's not Spaulding's work, but we don't have time to go into that. Translated, of course, and this is the part you probably heard about, from the golden plates. There were golden plates that were given uh, to him and uncovered that, of course, we don't have now. They were taken back to, to heaven because if you want to see him, you can't see him. But if I want to go to Yale or Cambridge or University of Michigan or if I want to go to Oxford or, or, or Cambridge and I want to look at documents of the New Testament dating back to antiquity, I can go look at those. And I have looked at, at, at several of those. But if I want to look at the, the plates... Uh, and get those hieroglyph hieroglyphics and try and, you know, see if I can make something of them with my Urim and Thummim or Peeping Stone or Magic Spectacles. You know, I can't do it. And it's, it's, not, it's not available. And again, I don't mean to mock, but I'm just saying it, you can't. This is unverifiable information. As Joseph Smith said, I obtained from them, the, the angel, the plates and the Urim and the Thummim, which if you don't know your Old Testament, these were the parts of the high priest's uh, garb or his vestments uh, that were used for making decisions, probably like dice, so to speak. They would, uh, you know, they were like pulling the short straw. We could talk about that, but it is a bit of a mystery because they're not explained in great detail in the Old Testament, but they were used somehow to make some decisions. He sees that as something to divine things that can be translated. He'd actually put stones, so he says, in a hat, stare into the hat and translate the, the plates. Anyway, he says he translated the plates because God gave him the tools to do that. And, and when he did, then of course, he had a few guys swear that they saw it. Those guys all defected, by the way. Some came back. Uh, but the guys at the front of the Book of Mormon that claim that they've seen the plates. Anyway, there's so much information we don't have time to talk about. But it falls apart almost in any point you press too hard. 
So you got the Book of Mormon, you got the Bible, the JST, the Joseph Smith translation is the best one because he's in that one. Sorry. And the Book of Mormon. The third avenue of, of, of authority is doctrines, doctrine and covenants, doctrine and covenants. Of course, the one that is official right now is the 1981 edition. And uh, that's important because these things change. As a matter of fact, Mormonism is hard to nail down because of so much information coming through the church, and we'll look at this in a minute, and the channels of authority, there's a lot of internal inconsistencies. Uh, not only are there a lot of things that were embarrassing because he was flying by the seat of his, his pants writing a lot of this, and they had to correct those things because they could not be reconciled, but still what's left on the table in terms of authority, uh, it, it's... it's I, in other words, I could quote from different periods of time in the church, and I could quote different sources, Book of Abraham, Book of Moses, as they call it, uh, his autobiography, uh, uh, Doctrine and Covenants, Book of Mormon, and you can see conflicts. And then you'd ask me, well, which is right? Uh, you even asked me that last week, some of you, about a couple of the doctrines we saw in the Catholic Church as their doctrine evolved. And I can't, I can't give an answer for that. There are contradictory uh, assertions in them. So anyway, the one that's cleaned up, at least the... the current cleaned up edition is, is the 1981 edition. It contains uh, 138 revelations, uh, two declarations or three declarations uh, coming mostly, he claims, through uh, God the Son, delivering them as, as the agent of these revelations. Uh, revealed primarily to Joseph Smith. There was a few others, about four or five other guys that were recipients of the revelation, but mostly he is the recipient of, of most of these. There's all kinds of things in here in Doctrine and Covenants that kind of establish and give authoritative support to some of the things that you know that are unique about the Mormons. For instance, the baptisms for the dead, uh, section 124 of uh, Doctrines and Covenants. Celestial marriage, uh, the eternal celestial marriage and how that works, 131. Polygamy in, in section 132, uh, which again has never been rescinded. The practice has just been stopped for now. There are different editions that bore different names, and you could just read the history of, of Doctrine and Covenants. It started with the Book of Commandments, took on different names, and uh, different ones were taken out, different sections were amended, which again doesn't speak well for it having divine authority. So various changes and deletions over the years, and we don't have time to itemize those, but I got tons of resources if you want to work through the way these have been changed through the years. Pearl of Great Price, and you've heard of this these need to go together. And you'll even see that quote-unquote scripture there that I have on the right-hand side. I know it's probably too small for you to read, but it'll say Holy Bible, Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, and Pearl of Great Price. Uh, this is a, a section of their scriptures that are deemed authoritative. They're excerpts from the translations of, of the uh, JST, the Joseph Smith translation, uh, in Matthew and Genesis in particular. The first section is like the first six chapters of Genesis with his amendments. Book of Abraham is in there, which I think we'll talk about. Oh, here's, I have a little bit here. Claimed to be a translation of the Egyptian papyrus. Just reading about this one document is fascinating. And there's a lot of embarrassment for the, for the Mormon church, even in that document. Clearly was, and he was all into selling these ancient manuscripts that he would come across. He bought one with, with clearly the Egyptian uh, embalming process. It's got some sketches on it. He claims it was Abraham, the sacrifice by a uh, idolatrous priest. Yeah, it, like I said, you press too hard on any of these areas and, and use your brain to suss this out and, and these things fall apart. The Book of Abraham is a classic example of that. Egyptologists will tell you there's just no possible way anything on the page of that original document, of which I've got a full-color picture of, of, the, of, the, of the whole thing in my office, 
you know, and what he claims it says, now he has to claim, now that people actually can read it, that, well, you know, I have the spiritual insight to read what it really says, even though every Egyptologist in the world reads something different. Excerpts from Joseph Smith's autobiography are in The Pearl of Great Price and uh, Articles of Faith, which is a bunch of selective doctrines within this thing called The Pearl of Great Price, which is its own section. Now, I often try to tell you to, if you're dealing with people that are adherents to these things, like the CCC, I said, go on Logos and grab this. And again, if some of you feel uncomfortable doing that, that's fine. I'm not telling you to get this material. But Logos right now doesn't have it, but you can bid on it because that means they're working on developing it. But they got a 45-volume collection of all, all their stuff. You get Pearlier Price, you got Doctrines and Covenants. It's not out yet, but... You know, you can bid 30 bucks, 40 bucks. I don't know if you're into Logos bidding, but just put your bid in, and at least it will encourage them to get this project moving. And if you do have Mormon friends and you want to go to source material to say this is what your church has taught, this is a, a great section. Journal of Discourses are on here from Volume 1 all the way to Volume 26. Life of their presidents, which I've got the whole set in my library in print, but it'd be great to get it in uh, digital format. Essentials of Church History the reorganized uh, church. Uh, you get all the histories of the Latter-day Saints. I think that's like a, what, seven-volume set. That's all in it. All the Book of Mormon, all the ready references from the Book of Mormon. It's 45 volumes. It might be worth getting if you can get it for a cheap price. But if you want all that material and you want to access it and you want to pay for any of it, it is all available, and it is a very user-friendly website, I hate to say, but uh, go to lds.org, and if you go on Scripture and Study and you click on that, I found that super helpful, even in my research to brush up on all this for tonight. Videos from presidents, videos from leaders, bishops, you'll see great material coming right out of their mouth as to what they teach. It's all searchable. Book of Mormon's there. Doctrine and Covenants is there. Pearl of Great Price. All their study helps. All their official study guides are there. Histories of their church. There's just a lot of things that are very helpful to say, here's what Mormonism teaches. And unlike Catholics, there are less Mormons that will deny the teachings of their church. Some are ashamed of some of the teachings of their church, and there's a lot of two-stepping going on to try and show, well, it's not as bad as all that, but it is good to look at it uh, for yourself and to read what uh, the, the church officially teaches. So that's lds.org for Latter-day Saints. If you do use Logos and you just type in Mormons to look at the resource, there are a lot of good resources on Logos, and I didn't put them in any particular order here. I just typed it in and there's several, probably 20 works that are good. I mean, I've used several of them through the years. I've got probably half of what they have available. But good resource guides, uh, some topical guides on Mormon history and, and Mormon doctrine. But again, they don't have the, the key scriptural texts available yet. But you can get all those on lds.org. But there are some decent things uh, on Logos that will help you think through it from a biblical perspective. That's what you're going to find right now on, on Logos. Well, there's one more, number five. And since we're done with books, that's, you know, that's why I had that little reference section there on the books. But let's talk about what continues as their authority. And this is much like we saw last week with the Catholic Church. You've got leaders now that are speaking continually for God. He's the president of the Council of the Twelve. They're apostles. They're called apostles. Uh, and certainly the president has a very, very important role in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Harold B. Lee, for instance, the 11th president back in the 70s, he was a very short-lived president, but listen to his words here. President Grant, one of their other presidents, used to say, brethren, keep your eye on the president of this church. For if he tells you to do anything that is wrong and you do it, now let's just think about that for a second. If he tells you to do anything wrong 
and you do it. The Lord will bless you for it. But you do not need to worry, even though I've said that. The Lord will never let his mouthpiece, never let his mouthpiece lead this people astray. So right now, their words through that leadership, which is not just the leader, the president, but the whole structure of their leadership, he's, he's confident uh, you're not going to be led astray. Uh, their official, it's called the Improvement Era, the Ward's teaching message, message, which comes out periodically. It helps the teachers. Listen to this statement from 19, uh, this is back in the 40s. Lucifer wins a great victory when he can get members of the church to speak against their leaders and to do their own thinking. Wow, we wouldn't want that. When our leaders speak, the thinking has been done, so you don't need to do it. When they propose a plan, it's God's plan. When they point the way, there is no other which is safe. When they give direction, it should mark the end of the controversy. So this is very authoritarian. Remember I said Catholicism is by nature authoritarian? No difference here. This is a very, very different approach to Paul teaching and saying the Bereans are very noble-minded because they're searching more than the Thessalonians because they're going home every day searching the Scripture to see if these things are so. The Bible's asking you to think, by the way, and, and this is very very different. General, uh, gospel Principles, which is an authoritative official LDS guide. I mean, this is a part of what is speaking authoritatively to the church today. This is page 49. The words of our living prophets are also accepted as scripture. Okay, that leaves the door open, right? It's not just Pearl of Great Price. It's not just Book of Abraham. It's not just Doctrine and Covenants. The word of our living prophets are also accepted as scripture. In addition to these four books of scripture, the inspired words of our living prophets become scripture to us. Their words come to us through, now notice how wide this is, conferences, church publications, and instructions to local priesthood leaders. So God is still speaking, authoritatively so, so much so that when they're speaking, it's the end of the controversy. Matter of fact, no need to think about it. They've done the thinking for you, the living prophets. Now, again, you know a lot of well-to-do people that are Mormons, right? And you think, wow, I, don't believe, I didn't know they believe this. This is the official teaching of their church. This is what they encourage. This is what they expect. Because if you believe what they believe, which is the authority of God is mediated through those human beings, which is all part of their priesthood doctrine, you've got no choice, right? You've got no choice. And then they take the Bible in that library of, of God's revelation and, and slide it to the weakest position of all, which is, well, you can't really trust that because it's been corrupted through the ages. So we're a long way from sola scriptura. It makes the Catholics look like, you know, we were right there when, when you talk about your Bible and people that are claiming a relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's think through some of their teaching. Teaching about God. Now, again, I'm going to quote for you, and, and I, this would have taken me a long time, and, and, and it can be done. Last week, all I did was quote you authoritative documents. Matter of fact, I gave you very little except for a quote from Mother Teresa, I think, and, and, and you know, one uh, prolific and very authoritative spokesman uh, who was a, a, a priest. This week, I'm not going to do that. I could do that. I could take every statement I'm about to show you, and I could show you something from Doctrine and Covenant, something from Joseph Smith's translations or amendments or additions. I could show you this information from their conferences or their presidents, but it would be too much because the variation is so much, we just can't possibly give you all the source material. We can find it. Then you're going to say, well, I think there's other parts of Mormonism that say something different. And that's what I get back to. There's so much information through so much time, given through so much that's called authoritative and scriptural, you're going to have some contradiction. And I'm not trying to find the most you know, salacious stuff. 
I'm just saying these are the standard teachings of Mormonism as I have read through Doctrines and Covenants, Book of Mormon, and, and, and peruse their website. Th- these are the things uh, that they teach, particularly in the things that they give to rank and file to say, here's some other things like the, you know, the, the, the teaching and study guides uh, about who they're relating to. Let's start with God. If you know anything about Mormonism, I think you know this, that their, their teaching on God is that God was once a man. He was once just like you. And you have a father, and so, of course, God the Father has a father. God is not eternal in the sense that we would say this transcendent, holy, set apart, like no other, immortal, invisible, God-only wise. That, that, that's not the picture here. This is very different. This is much like you today, God once, once was. He progressed to become God by his obedience, by what he did. And he is God, and we look to him as God because of his progress to godhood by the way he he lived, by the choices that he made. Well, you should feel very much like God because God, in his essence, his ontology, who he is, is a physical being. That's a big part of the doctrine all the way back to the beginning. And like I've said, you can go back all the way to Joseph Smith, and there's so many things that he said that other leaders in, in years after have started to ratchet back. Some of it has been excised from some of the early teaching. But there's so much material out there, you can't avoid it. And God being a physical, that's not one of them. But I'm just thinking about the outlandish statements that I've read um, that the early leaders, Brigham Young, Joseph Smith, have have written. But God is a physical. By me, flesh and bones, fingernails, you know, nostrils, you know, eyelashes. God is a physical being. There is no Trinity, as you can understand. There are three gods. I'll give you that, but not Trinitarian. So basically, we could say they're polytheistic. There's a belief in many gods, which should be no surprise just knowing that God is um, achieving godhood and not the only one who can. Every father God has a heavenly wife, a heaven wife, or heavenly wives, heaven wives. They've got, they got wives. I, uh, you're, in your Bible, our God doesn't have one. They produce millions of spirit beings. Matter of fact, that's part of what happens to get to the place of creating a world, a cosmos, is they produce so many spirit beings, then it's time to make a world and send them, these spirit beings, in to inhabit physical bodies. Now, again, there's even some intra-contradiction as you think through how this all functions, and we'll see this in anthropology or teaching about people in a second. But God here, creating spirit beings with his heavenly wife, now we have to populate a a planet, and um, this is their very bizarre teaching about God. Now, again, someone's going to say, if you're a Mormon here or you're listening to this, you can say, well, that's not bizarre to me at all because that's what I'm taught. Well, again, we understand the veracity of the Bible, the legitimacy of the Bible, the sola scriptura, authority of the Bible, and we're saying that God has spoken, and it's clear why he's, and again, there's so much to this, but he's punctuated the authority of the Bible with predictive prophecy that proves, to use a Catholic term, the imprimatur of God on it all. And so when I compare the scripture to what you're saying about God having a wife producing spirit babies and then putting them in the world, world in human bodies because he's made so many of them. It's, it's absurd to us. You have to understand because the Bible doesn't teach that. And you can claim our Bible's corrupt, but you're wrong in that. Completely and 100% wrong. You don't know what you're talking about. So I know that's normal to you because that's what you've been taught. Teaching about people. When it comes to people, human beings, we all pre-existed. Now we often talk about that when we look at the deity of Christ, for instance, and we say, here's Jesus making so many statements about his pre-existence. And, and when we went through Christology, as a matter of fact, I would say all of you need to footnote 
the last one with our theology proper, 12 weeks of theology proper, this one you could say, well, I'm talking about people. We did that one not too long ago, our 12 weeks on anthropology and, and, and hamartiology, sin, and, and, and the doctrine of man. But even here, you can think of Christology in our study of how often we saw in Scripture something so unique compared to everything else in the Bible regarding our mortality and God's, Christ's rather, immortality, even by the simple statements of his preexistence. It didn't match the definition of humanity. Well, they've changed the definition of humanity and say, well, all humans have preexisted just like Christ. Matter of fact, you engaged in pre-mortality deeds before you took on human form like Jesus took on human form. There's an incarnation for you just like there was an incarnation for Christ. Uh, you engaged in deeds. You also will, after your death, you will engage in post-mortality deeds, which will all have a bearing, by the way, on uh, your eternity. Sin on earth, the things you do on earth, are conscious deeds. In other words, the problem of sin that you have is one that really starts with your knowledge of right and wrong. In other words, if you think about the debate that... Uh, Augustine had trying to figure out in his day what these people were saying about Pelagius in particular, saying, Pelagius saying that people are born innocent. I mean, clearly, I mean, if you want the classic, I mean, so weird, and it's wrapped in so many weird things, but classic Pelagianism is expressed in, in Mormon doctrine, and that is we're born innocent, at least in terms of our mortality and our mortal deeds. Uh, you don't inherit sin from Adam. You're not in a camp that's condemned. Whatever damage was done by Adam's sin is reversed by Christ, and we'll look at that in a minute. But your deeds that are against you and anything that would make you make problematic, anything problematic between you and God was not inherited. It's only done. You deal with your own sins. Adam, Romans 5 is wrong. God created us to become gods like him. That's the point of human beings. God now is a God, but he was a man. You now are a man or a woman, and you are to become gods and goddesses. That's your future. That's the goal, at least. And those faithful Mormons will become gods. The goal of our existence is to obtain godhood. That's the whole point. He created you to become like him. And the whole concept of Mormonism, the whole concept of the, of the priesthood, all of these things are leading you to that attaining of, God, of godhood. And even if you miss it, if you have somebody that down the road becomes a Mormon, they can help you after you die, and you'll have another choice, another chance to obtain godhood, and it's possible. Eternal life for them. Whenever they read the words eternal life, what they mean by that and what they see in that and they, how they've decoded that through their extra biblical writings is for them to read the Bible or any other thing that says eternal life and say, I know what you're talking about. You're talking about me becoming a God, reaching Godhood, attaining Godhood. And of course, they've had to tap dance around this one, but dark skin was a punishment. The Lamanites were punished because of their sin and they were made to be un, not fair and delightsome like the white people and there they weren't going to be attractive to the white people. I mean, that's, I hope, a very big embarrassment for the Mormons. It ought to be. Now, I know they've rectified that. You go on LDS.org and make sure to have, you know, African-American people on the screen and all that. But not a real popular religion for most African-American people. And if you read the early stuff, wow. Talk about Christ. Christ was a pre-existing spirit just like us. He existed just like you and just like me in a pre-existent spiritual state. He became incarnate. He took on human flesh. And we did too. Now, what's special about Jesus? Clearly, he plays an instrumental role in Revelation, in, in, in Joseph Smith's mind, and in the Bible. Uh, well, that's because he's the firstborn spirit of the Father. So he is the firstborn, and that's, they have to deal with the words like prototokos in Greek, monogenes in Greek, these Greek words that describe Christ 
as being the heir of all things. Well, the way it's translated, which is unfortunate in people's minds, it's translated only begotten, for instance, even in John 3.16, or one and only son, which is a better translation. They've taken that very literally and said, well, he is the firstborn in the spirit family of, of the father. We are literally, in this sense, and I mean in every sense, we are literally brothers and sisters of Christ. You may, uh, might say, and we might find uh, the rare passage that speaks of Christ, our older brother, our elder brother, or sing a hymn about that, but uh, they mean that much differently than we mean that. Uh, he's not just the firstborn among many brothers, as Scripture says, as the prototype of the resurrection, but we are literally just like him in that regard and that we were spirit children of the Father, born and incarnate into this world. And therefore, his divinity is not unique. Now, he's unique in terms of time, but he's not unique in terms of quality. In other words, he is someone who has attained a divinity, and you can too. And you can also look at Lucifer, which is probably the more salacious thing that people point out. And of course, he is Christ's brother, but he's also your brother. So <laughs> he's a part of the spirit children of the Father. Jesus, now this gets strange if you try to read the Bible with this in your mind, is Jehovah. They call him Jehovah on their website, which of course is not a word. If you've been through us with us in theology proper, Jehovah is a conflation of uh, the vowels of Elohim and, the, and the, the consonants of Yahweh. And so, but whatever, that doesn't matter. The point is, when you read the Old Testament and you see capital L, capital O-R-D, they're all in caps, they're small caps, but they're all in caps, then what you're reading there is Jesus. That's Jesus. He's the Jehovah of the Old Testament. And when you read the word, which we don't read it in English, but you see the word God in your English Bible, which translates the Hebrew word Elohim, well, that's the Father. So the Father's Elohim, and if you listen to the teachers, you have somebody with a blackboard sitting there teaching the Mormons, and you know Elohim comes up because Elohim designates the Father. Yahweh does not. They don't use that word. They use the word Jehovah. Jehovah is Jesus in the Old Testament. Jesus' incarnation was by Elohim's sex act, just to be very blunt about it. I mean, they very carefully word this, because a lot of this writing goes back to antiquity, well, not antiquity, but the 1800s, and so they'd say it in many different ways, but the point is they believe that there was actually a physical sex act that the father, Elohim, had with Mary to create the, the, the body, the material body, the flesh and blood body for Jesus, the spirit baby, to be born in a physical realm. You've heard that, right? If not, if that's new to you, that's why you gasped, a few of you maybe. Yeah, yeah. And this doctrine, I don't know. Da Vinci Code comes out. Dan Brown writes this book. He's making statements out of Gnostic Gospels. And, of course, he's got a completely anachronistic view of history as well. And he doesn't understand what's going on in Constantine's time. Nevertheless, he makes a lot of claims that aren't true. But the scandal of that whole book and, and movie was what? Jesus had a, had a wife, right? I mean, we're a long way from that to say God... Elohim, the father, uh, had sex with Mary to create Jesus. Of course, they believe Jesus was married as well, but all right. Salvation. They use the word atonement in their theology, but atonement does not mean what it means for us. To atone for our sins, when you talk about atonement, you talk about Christ dying to atone for your sins. If you go back to the Old Testament word or even the New Testament word, to have that sense of covering or dealing with sins. As it says in Isaiah 1, though your sins are as scarlet, they'll be white as snow. The concept of atonement being taking your account that's blotted before God and making it pure and right before God. That's not what atonement means in their theology. Christ atoned for our sins, but only insofar as Adam had messed up our existence. Adam messed up our existence by Entering, by injecting death into the equation, physical death. So physical death is dealt with by Christ's atoning work. 
He doesn't deal with your sins. Your sins are your conscious acts in your flesh. Those things that you do, you're going to have to pay for those. You're going to have to deal with those. You're going to have to atone for those yourself. Jesus helped us as our Savior, and we can call him our Savior in Mormon theology because he did atone for Adam's sin that did impact us. But now you've got to do your part. He's now opened up an opportunity for you because of his resurrection and his death to give you an opportunity now to get it right, to attain to perfection and achieve your godhood. He's helped us now. You've got to work. You've got to get your part done. Jesus' atonement, I already said that, overcomes our physical death. That's what the atonement was all about. Jesus gives us general salvation, they would teach, but not individual salvation. And you can see this is where a lot of the double talk comes in, where they can speak your language and say, Jesus saved us. God gives us salvation. But what they mean by that is not what you and I mean by that, by studying the Bible, reading the Bible, and defining our terms by the Bible. They define it by their extra-biblical authority, and that leads them to say, he didn't individually deal with your sin. He set you up. He's prepared you now to let you enter the path of perfection. People must progress toward that increasing perfection. And you'll reach it. And you'll reach divinity. You'll reach godhood. One thing that you've got to have, and you can read this all over their website, and that is you've got to be baptized. That baptism act is just like, as the Catholics would say, an efficacious act, an act that wipes away your sin. And in this case, it gives you that entrance into this increasing path of perfection. You need it. You cannot be saved without it. Hell is for Satan and his henchmen. And it's a temporary place for you to hear the gospel. So there are people in hell. They're in their post-mortal bodies. They're in their post they're in a, in a, a post-mortal spiritual existence as spirit beings post-mortem, but they now have an opportunity to respond to the gospel. It's a temporary place because you're going to get out of there and you're going to go to one of three places, the celestial heaven, the terrestrial heaven, or the celestial heaven. Celestial. The, and this is unfortunate, so unfortunate. Again, when you've got guys starting religions that don't know Hebrew or Greek, we've got a problem. Because they don't understand some of the idioms of the, of, of the Scripture, both in the Old and New Testament, or Ranos in Greek, or Shemayim in, in Hebrew. The, the concept of heaven being used for three distinct things. There's no doubt about this. You could, you could be a first-year student in any of these languages and understand when you try to define something like heaven, it's used in three distinct contextual ways. It's either the, the sky, heaven, and we use that in the plural, in the Hebrew words in, in the plural, with an I-M at the end, and the stars, space, where the planets hang out, and then the place where God lives. So what Paul says, when he says, I was caught up to the third heaven, that's an idiom everyone understands in the original language. We don't understand it because we have the word sky and space, and we use those words distinctly to describe the things that they use the word heaven for. So when Paul speaks of the third heaven, he's not trying to divide heaven up. The other passage they'll point to is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when it talks about the glory. Uh, I think I wrote this down. To, quote, to read it to you. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. The glory of the heavenly one, the, I'm sorry, the glory of the heavenly is of one kind. The glory of the earthly is another. There's one glory of the sun, one glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for they differ from star to star. Well, the context is the resurrection, but this example of those that come of the order of Christ, him being the first fruits, and those that don't, has nothing to do with trying to divide heaven up into three parts. But they use that to come up with their words, celestial, for the stars type heaven, terrestrial, the land, right, the, the earthly, and then celestial, the heavenly, which to them, they don't recognize. That's a word used for, for three levels of sky, but that they think is the ultimate. If you are going to the celestial heaven, you get out of hell if you happen to be there, 
and you hear the gospel or someone gets baptized for you, we'll talk about that in a second, then you will probably go, depending on, on your life, to the terrestrial heaven, which isn't so bad. It's for respectable people. can be non-Mormons there. Hopefully they'll look at you. That's why they're not too upset about your future because hopefully you, even though you're not a part of the true church and you're, not, you're part of a corrupt church, hopefully you'll be a good person and you're not killing anybody and you may reject Mormonism for now, but you'll get, get around to it and you'll be, in, you'll be in an okay place. You failed to achieve godhood, but it's okay. Telestial, that's for the bad people pretty much that don't get it right. They're really stubborn. And of course, I'm being a bit sarcastic and shorthand. You can read about their levels of heaven and how they very dignified uh, with dignified language described. Celestial heaven, though, is for the Mormons, for the faithful Mormons, those that have achieved, achieved the Melchizedekian priesthood, were part of a home where the Melchizedek, Melchizedekian priest was leading. That's those who have achieved exaltation are becoming gods. Yeah. And again, trying to point out what they believe, there's so many things in terms of proper doctrine that if you want to talk about what is the reality of the afterlife? What is the reality of the judgment? What is the reality of heaven? Go to the soteriology study, and we will talk through what the Bible says in those lectures. Let's talk about the priesthood, because this is unique, which, by the way, it's so unique and such a cornerstone of their theology. If you can undo this, which is super easy, a third grader should be able to do it, you will take the linchpin out of, out of their whole theology. I mean, one of the unique aspects of Mormon theology is the restored Aaronic priesthood. And when I say Aaronic priesthood, I mean Aaron, Moses' brother, the Levitical priesthood. Let's talk about that. And as you remember in the history, that was the first one to be restored. Now, there are three levels to the Levitical priesthood. Once you're baptized and you're 12 years old, you can become, in the first stage of this, you can become a deacon. I know, when you think about that, 12-year-old deacon. A teacher can attain to that level at 14, and if you're 16 as a minimum, you can become a priest. There's the third level of this Aaronic priesthood. Now, this is kind of like the altar boys in the Catholic Church. Really, it's seen as a preparatory priesthood. You're not really a priest, not the important priest at least, but you're in the order of Aaron, and that is a priesthood that basically is there just to serve, as they say, the temporal needs of the church. You're now going to go, and you're going to try and serve the Melchizedekian priests and do whatever needs to be done. That's your job, to assist the real priest to have the power. But if you're 12, I mean, you think in terms of bar mitzvahs, and you've got some similarity here, at least in terms of coming of age and being a part of one of the priesthoods. The other priesthood, and the important one, is the Melchizedekian priesthood. What is the Melchizedekian priesthood according to Joseph Smith? I'm glad you asked. He's got an answer. Those holding the fullness of the Melchizedek priesthood are kings and priests of the Most High God, holding the keys of power and blessing. Now think about that. That's big. In fact, that priesthood is a perfect law of theocracy. You know what theocracy is, right? Where God rules on earth. Not a democracy, a theocracy. Not a monarchy, a theocracy. God ruling on earth. And he does it through the mediation of the Melchizedekian priesthood. And it stands as God to give laws to the people. Now think about that. It stands, this priesthood, as laws. It can give laws to the people. It can dictate laws, administering endless life, it's also mediating salvation, to the sons and daughters of Adam. From his own mouth, Joseph Smith Jr., if you hold to the fullness of the Melchizedekian priesthood, you've got kings and priests of the Most High holding the keys of power and blessing. The priesthood is a perfect law of theocracy. It stands as God to give laws to the people, administering endless life to the sons and daughters of Adam. Mormonism claims to be a theocratic government for God. 
you wonder sometimes why there's so many Mormons interested in local government, not just local government. Let's talk Mitt Romney, right? At the highest levels of government to say, hey, this is an important place for us to be. Well, if you understand the theology, of course it's a perfect place for you. It's the natural place for you to be. You hold the keys of heaven. And you are part of God's plan to usher in a theocratic kingdom here on earth. There are three levels to the Melchizedekian priesthood. It starts with elder, it moves to 70, and ultimately to high priest. So much you can read about this, the distinctions and stages, much like the Aaronic priesthood, three levels to the Melchizedekian priesthood. You need a, a recommend to the priesthood. There are the stake leaders. There are, it's, it's, a lot, it's a lot like the hierarchy of an Episcopal church or even the Catholic church with sessions if you come from a Presbyterian background, cardinals and bishops, but you've got this hierarchy and to be brought up you need a, a recommendation. Usually you've got to be 18 years old, uh, old or older, on a mission, been on a mission, married in the temple. There's lots of things you need to have at least recommended or expected to be called up to serve and be endowed as a Melchizedekian priest. Now this is just for men. These men lead in their homes. Now, this used to be a lot less talk of equality, but now on their websites, at least they'll talk about you gals being equal with your husbands in this, but he serves as the Melchizedekian priest of his family and serves really more than that as a Melchizedekian priest to the whole world. Now, I guess if you want to understand this wacky word Melchizedek and what that's all about, Genesis 14, Psalm 110, and Hebrews chapter 7, 8, and 9, it'd be good for you to go to focal point type in the word Melchizedek. Probably need to spell it right to find it. You could type in priesthood. That might get you there to a series of messages that I've preached in the book of Hebrews on the Melchizedekian priesthood, which doesn't take any scholar to tell you. If you just read the text two or three times and look at it carefully, you'll understand this. There's only one Melchizedekian priest. The whole concept of Melchizedek was that you had a priest that preceded Aaron, who was given a priesthood to do something that the book of Hebrews says is now completely defunct and passe in the New Testament. We no longer need the Aaronic priest. As a matter of fact, it is now, it, it's gone. It was a shadow of the things to come, the realities in Christ, and so there is no Aaronic priesthood. And yet, according to Joseph Smith, on the authority of heaven, it's to be revived. And so they have it, which again has nothing to do with what they are using it for to what the Bible says. They've stolen the name, but they claim it's biblical. It has nothing to do with what the Bible says, and the Bible would say it's wrong. I mean, you're bordering on blasphemy to try and resurrect something God has so clearly said is now passe. The Melchizedekian priesthood is a priest that's been given the ability to serve as an mediator between God and man in Genesis 14, he's used as a picture of what Christ becomes because to be a priest in, in Israel, you had to be from the line of, of Aaron. You had to be a Levite from the tribe of Levi. Jesus, of course, was to be the king. Well, if to be the king, if you're going to be the Messiah, you've got to be from the line of Judah. How can you, you can't be from two different lines. He's from the line of Judah. Well, he's going to claim that he's the mediator between God and man. The writer of Hebrews says, here's the thing. There's a prophecy over there in the middle of Psalms that talks about the Melchizedekian priest, that someone is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. That is the prophetic word from David. A thousand years after he showed up in Genesis 14, a thousand years later, Jesus shows up. He claims this, at least by the mouth of the writer of Hebrews, to say, here is one who has a legitimate function as a mediator between God and man, but he wasn't from the line of Judah. That's all that meant. And Jesus says, I'm it. 
So Jesus fulfills the Aaronic priesthood. Jesus fulfills the Melchizedekian priesthood. There's absolutely no room in the book of Hebrews to say it's an unfinished office that should be revived in the church or functioning in the church. It is actually something the Bible says when we start going back to those things, like Galatians says, you now make Christ null and void. You cannot now submit to the law of the ceremonies like circumcision or the priesthood and claim that you have the benefits of the grace of Christ. They're, they're, they're mutually exclusive. And yet that's exactly what he's done, claiming now some kind of theocratic authority in society. Well, the Mormons will tell you, as they've told me, you don't have the priesthood. You don't have the priesthood. You don't have... You know why your church is valid? You don't have the priesthood. Well, we do have the priesthood. I pray to the great high priest every single day. I have a mediator that stands between God and man. As a matter of fact, an interesting thing, if you want to talk about the priesthood, it's not Aaronic and it's not Melchizedekian, but you know what God says in his word in 1 Peter? He says, now I'm going to make you all a kingdom of priests. We call it the, the priesthood of the believer. It's not... You don't have to be 12. It doesn't matter if you've been on a mission or not. You don't have to be married in a temple or even our church. You are a priest, a kingdom of priests. And all that means is you have direct access to God, according to the Bible, because you're a convert of Jesus Christ. You put your trust in Christ. So when the Mormons tell me you don't have the priesthood, I stick my tongue out and I say, we do have the priesthood. Uh, matter of fact, you're talking to one now the only valid priest in the New Testament that stands outside the only priest that is the great high priest, Jesus Christ. There is no Melchizedekian priesthood beyond Christ. There is no Aaronic priesthood beyond Christ. Christ fulfilled the Aaronic. He assumed the Melchizedekian. And now he calls me a priest because I have direct access to God through Christ. More on that. If you want more on that, you can go to focalpointministries.org or fpr.info and look up the word Melchizedek. There's several sermons on, a handful of sermons, I think, on that teaching about proxy baptism. Another thing that is of interest to people, I think, is this baptisms for the dead is what it's called. Proxy baptisms is performed in the Mormon temples. Some states don't have them. We have a handful. There's some here in Southern California. You drive by them. In those temples, there are the rituals. I've toured the one in La Jolla. I've seen where they do the baptisms. Maybe you've gone through that too. Maybe, maybe you're an ex-Mormon. Maybe you're a Mormon. You've, you've been in there. That's where the baptisms take place. Baptisms, of course, for people that are being baptized into Mormonism, but also for those that are baptized for the dead. This is all based on the belief that that baptism saves you, which if you go to their website today, it'll talk all about how baptism, water baptism, saves you. Just like the Catholic Church, they have a very big confusion about being baptized by the Spirit and being baptized in water. So this is part and parcel. They'll quote all the passages that people misquote to say, oh yeah, see, repent and be baptized, and so baptism saves you. What they're doing in the temple is they're being baptized for the dead. That's why they do all the genealogies. That's why they're so good at looking up your ancestors. They want you to start by concerning yourself with those in your family, your ancestors that were not saved. They were not baptized. They didn't have a chance to respond to the gospel of Joseph Smith. So you are going to be baptized in their stead by proxy in the temple ceremony. Now, they're careful to say this on their website and in their official teachings that people get offended. They're thinking, I don't want you being baptized for my dead relative. You know, if your brother becomes a Mormon and you're not a Mormon and he starts getting baptized for your grandfather, you get mad, don't do that. I don't want my grandfather to be a Mormon. Listen, they'll tell you your dead grandfather in his spirit life right now is going to have to choose. Because a Mormon has done this for him, now it's there and available. Now he has to embrace it. So he's still got a decision to make. If he chooses to accept that, then uh, he can receive the benefits of Mormon baptism. It's done on behalf of those who have not heard the gospel. They point to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 29 as a proof text, which I've taught on that passage too. You can look that up if you'd like. It's 
clearly a text that's trying to make a point out of the reality of the people that want to deny the resurrection in Corinth. Uh, and he makes a statement about, what about those that are baptized for the dead? It's the only reference like that anywhere in the Bible. And you need to look at all of those surrounding verses to understand the point that's being made without any comment regarding whether this is a baptism that is somehow understood by the Corinthians as proxy baptism. And if it were, I can go all over the Bible to say none of that works. There's nothing that can happen to someone by proxy. I mean, I just jotted down Ezekiel 18, verse 20. Romans chapter 9, verse 1. Here's two great examples, and there's many. Those are just quick ones I thought of in terms of saying every person's going to have to deal with their own repentance. Everyone's going to have to deal with their own sin. You're going to die, and then after that, you face the judgment. You're done with the opportunities. And as Romans chapter 9 says, um, Paul says, if I could do anything to save my kinsmen, I would do it, but I can't. That's the assumption there in his prayer as he grieves for the lost. And speaking of Hebrews 9, 27 that I just quoted, there are no second chances. And so none of that makes sense within the rest of Scripture. But that's a passage you've got to look at. Um, it's the only one that they quote in this regard. I want to end with this, burning in the bosom. Ooh, what's that? That sounds interesting. Doctrine and covenants, which of course is their Scripture, one of their scriptural canons. Chapter 9, verses 8 and 9 says this. And this is the thing I always get back to when I talk about how to share with, with Mormons the truth of the gospel. You need to appeal to their mind, but unfortunately they have an epistemology or how they understand truth being deciphered that makes it almost impossible to reason with people who have been taught this. Here's what their scripture teaches. I say to you that you must study it out in your mind. Well, I like it so far. Starting to sound like Bereans. Starting to sound like you need to think this through. But I know that's too good to be true. Then you must ask me if it be right. So you're not going to ask God. You study it, think about it. And if it is right, I will cause that your bosom shall burn within you. Therefore, you shall feel that it is right. But if it be not right, you shall have no such feelings. I've had them say this to me in my conversations with Mormons. That's what they want me to do. Read the Book of Mormon. Read it. And then pray and ask God. Because this is our scripture. You ask God and God will give you some kind of existential, experiential feeling. Now, Daniel Oakes, the Quorum of the Twelve, describes it this way when he tries to define it. The word burning in this scripture, because they're trying to talk to people that haven't felt anything burning inside of them, says, look, it signifies this. All we're looking for is a feeling of comfort and serenity. That is the witness that many receive. That is the way revelation works. So the idea is that there is an existential, experiential feeling that confirms it. And when I tell someone, listen, let me show you how none of what you're telling me about your doctrine of the Mormon church squares with a very reliable text of scripture that has all the proof of revelation from God and none of the contradictions of your prophet's doctrines, look at this. And, and they'll say, I've already done what our scriptures say. And that is, I've looked at it. I've read the Book of Mormon. I've listened to the teaching of the Mormon church. I prayed that God will give me a feeling and he gave me a feeling. Therefore, case closed. I remember in the shadow of the La Jolla monstrosity there, sharing with Mormons and having them look me in the eye and say, I've had the feeling. I've had the feeling. And if I've had the feeling, there's no more conversation that I can have logically. And that's a problem. The scripture is completely the opposite. It does not want us ever to use our feelings as an indicator of whether or not something is true or not. As a matter of fact, the Bible is going to tell us continually the problem with our feelings is they're not reliable at all. And if you think about this in such unbiblical teaching, I mean, you don't think Satan is so ready to give feelings to people to affirm stuff that they're not willing to think through? 
Oh, they'll think about it, but only so, as, only so far as I, I ask God for a feeling and he grants it. So when you're dealing with Mormons, all I've got to say is you've got to deal with the reliability of Scripture. You've got to come back to really thinking about every other area of your life that you don't determine by your feelings. You have to determine by whether or not it is rational. As Paul sat there and talked to King Agrippa, he made it very clear. This is true. These are true and rational words. You've got to research these things. You've got to look at these things logically. And, and, and the Spirit of God isn't telling us to shut our minds off and, and simply confirm what we're thinking about based on our feelings. And that's what makes it very difficult. A million other things I could tell you about this. You want to learn some of the background of Mormonism? There's a lot of books. Our friend, our now deceased friend, Walter Martin, I know his family's here with us, but hard to improve on his coverage of the Mormon church and the background of Mormonism in his book, Kingdom of the Cults. Uh, really well done, well-researched. If you're really just dealing with someone who's peppering you with questions, Ron Rhodes' book on reasoning from the Scripture with Mormons, very helpful, very practical. Almost any of the other books that are available on Logos would be good in terms of just dealing with the biblical evaluation of Mormon claims. All right, that's all I got time for. Let's pray. God, I know this is very difficult for us in some ways because a lot of what we see in Mormon practice is almost quintessential in terms of what we hope Christianity produces. I mean, a lot of times it's strong families. It seems like very moral people. I mean, we like these people. They're, they're respectable. They're, they're honest. They, they do good works. They spend time as a family together. They eschew a lot of the garbage of our society, many of them at least, and, and that's impressive. But God, help us not to become like what we've just said is impossible for us to live by, and that is just looking at their lives and saying, well, it seems to be that it's true because it's producing something culturally acceptable or even seemingly acceptable in terms of our standards of right and wrong. What it comes down to is whether or not it's true. And God, so I pray that we'd be good students of the word and that we would recognize that we do have a sure and reliable word. And for those that don't know that or don't understand that or haven't researched that, I pray they would do their homework on whether or not this book is corrupt as Mormons claim and recognize that what really is corrupt, the more we look at it, is just about every single document that's come out of the hierarchy of the Mormon church. Help us not to be pejorative. We don't want to be demeaning. We don't want to be dismissive. And forgive me, God, if I've been that at all in any way tonight. I don't want to be. I want to be respectful, but I, I want to make clear that we've got to be just vigilant about the attacks on Scripture that we can't let stand because they're made without any grounds or without any proof. So help us to be defenders of your truth. As the Bible says, that we would be ready to knock down anything that raises itself up against the knowledge of God. And there's a lot of that going on uh, through Mormon teaching. And so I pray we would be just discerning and helpful and, and, and a, a real friend to our Mormons uh, that we know, that we interact with throughout the week. And a real friend's not just going to throw our arm around them and be kind. It's going to really care about their soul. Because unlike their theology, for us, if we miss it, we still got all kinds of second chances and we're going to still end up in a place that's not half bad. But for them, God, if they follow a lie, as the Bible says, there'll be no hope. There'll be only outer darkness where there's weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. And that's not just the abode of Satan. The Bible's very clear. That's for people that cry out, Lord, Lord, did we not do this and that? So help us to love our Mormon friends enough to tell them the truth. And God, I just pray you'd give us discernment. Thanks, God, for the study. Thanks for this crowd. Thanks for their willingness to engage in this study that uh, can be tedious at times, but I pray helpful and enlightening. Dismiss us now, God, with a sense of your uh, just uh, encouragement and motivation to be good students of all that we hear and good discerning evaluators of all that's presented to us in our weekly lives. I thanks so much for this church and these people in Jesus' name. Amen.